Caution. The contents of this podcast may be historical, but they're still served piping hot. We're brewing up the classics here on the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And this week we're going back to our regularly scheduled programming with some historical composer talk and music analysis. This week we'll be going into the history of Carl Friedrich Abel, a Baroque composer, and his sonata for the viola da gamba. And along the way, maybe we'll talk about a little what the viola da gamba actually is. Carl Friedrich Abel was born in Köthen, Germany in 1723, placing him in the late Baroque or early Classical era. He came from a musical family, and so as a child he learned many instruments, including keyboard instruments, brass instruments, and the violin. However, the instrument he was most famous for playing was the viola da gamba. His father and grandfather before him had both been viola da gamba players with his father actually being the principal player in J.S. Bach's court orchestra in the city. And so he had quite the legacy to live up to, but I think he definitely did. In 1737, when Carl was 14, his father passed away. In order to continue his musical studies, Carl moved to Leipzig, where the Bach family happened to be living at the time. He certainly spent a good amount of time associating with the Bachs. However, it is unclear how much of his musical career was directly tied to them at this point. Nonetheless, J.S. Bach eventually gave Abel a recommendation that in 1743 allowed him to become a member of the court orchestra in Dresden, and he held that position for 14 years. However, a dispute with the music director Johann Adolf Haas led Abel to resign from his post and move to jolly old England. Abel was successful in this new country. He was able to quickly find employment again as a court musician, but this time for the court of Queen Charlotte. Abel had been in England for four years when Johann Christian Bach, known as the London Bach, also moved to the city, and the two became roommates and fast friends, establishing one of the first public subscription concert series known as the Bach-Abel Concerts. And this business venture was a landmark achievement not only for their careers, but also for the history of music. Before this, public music was generally only heard at church or on holidays, with fancy concerts being more like private events for the wealthy. However, this series brought music to a wider array of people, and Bach and Abel typically featured their own new works on the concerts, thus allowing their particular talents to be heard by the general population. Abel and Bach both became mentors to the young Mozart when he visited London on his great European tour with his father. Interestingly, if it weren't for this mentorship, Abel might not actually have been recognized now in our modern era. Apparently, in an effort to learn compositional techniques, Mozart had been assigned to copy one of Abel's symphonies. Later, when this manuscript was found to have Mozart's writing on it, it was published as attributed to Mozart. Only later, after some Abel manuscripts were discovered, was the work correctly identified and attributed. Abel was apparently a very good early classical composer, as his style very closely matched that of Mozart, which is why the misattribution was missed for so many years. And because people found out that Abel was actually a good composer, 
In the 19th century, his works saw a resurgence of performances. Although the Bach Abel concerts were very popular, J.C. Bach eventually had to back out of the partnership due to declining health and lack of finances. After Bach's death in 1782, Abel stopped putting on the concerts and actually toured Europe as a performing soloist on the viola da gamba. Much of the solo music he wrote for himself to perform had a slightly different tone than the symphonies and chamber works that he had produced for the Bach Abel concerts. This music, though still crowd-pleasing, was much more sensitive and emotional. Interestingly, many people describe his music as concise, yet he was still able to infuse meaning into every note he wrote. Abel returned to London after his Continental Concert Tour in 1787. He died later that year and was hailed as the last great gamba player in Europe. A portrait of him was hung in the Hanover Square Rooms, the concert venue where the Bach Abel concert has been staged as a tribute to his great musicianship. As promised, we'll now tell you just what a viola da gamba is. You might be tempted to think that it's just a long, outdated term for the modern viola. This instrument, however, is quite distinct from our modern orchestral viola, or any other orchestral string instrument for that matter. The viola da gamba, or viol for short, actually more closely resembles a cello, as it is played upright rather than resting under the chin. The viol came in many sizes, with some being about the same size or smaller than a modern violin. However, they are still played in the upright, cello position. Another difference between our modern string instruments and the viol is that it had six strings. We've talked on the podcast before about playing double stops on stringed instruments, meaning you bow multiple strings at once to form a chord. So just imagine the note combinations you could create on all six strings. Also unlike our modern orchestral stringed instruments, the viol features frets, much like a modern guitar. And these instruments are also crafted in a different shape than our modern instruments. They're usually more narrow at the top than the bottom, unlike the more uniform modern instruments, and the backs of them are flat as opposed to being slightly rounded. And finally, the strings are also strung more loosely than our modern bowed instruments. As a result of all of this, the sound is a little quiet and seems to contain more vibrations that you can actually hear and pick out. The quietness of its sound seems to have been the viol's downfall. As orchestras became larger and concert halls more spacious, a more piercing sound was the desired choice. As you listen to the excerpts in the upcoming piece analysis, try and notice how this instrument sounds familiar but just a little off from what we normally hear with a stringed instrument. So let's listen to what a skilled composer could do with the supple sounds of the viol by looking at Abel's Sonata in G Major specifically written to be played on the viola da gamba. The piece is written in the very common form of an early classical era sonata, meaning it has three movements that have unique forms yet are all in the same key, in this case G Major. The movements are an introductory adagio movement, a short allegro middle movement, and a concluding minuet and trio.
while pleasing, there's nothing particularly revolutionary about this piece. So, to show off that Abel was a really knowledgeable composer about the style of the times, we're going to flex our theory muscles a bit and talk through some selected harmonic analysis on these movements. As we mentioned, the viol has six strings, meaning even more notes can be played together at once. This makes the harmony much more apparent than if just a single note were being played with just implied harmony. The first movement starts with chords right off the bat. The piece is in 3-4 time and starts off with a half note G major tonic chord. Then on beat 3, Abel jumps to the dominant fifth of G major, D, which is a preparatory note for the inverted 5 chord we hear on the downbeat of the next measure. the same tonic chord we heard at the beginning. However, it's on the third beat of the measure now rather than the strong downbeat, and it's actually just acting as passing tones as we move from that inverted 5 chord to an inverted 4 or predominant chord. In music theory, chord progressions usually move from tonic to predominant to dominant. However, we've just told you this chord progression is moving from tonic to dominant to predominant. That would usually be thought more of as a regression, which isn't very common. What makes this still acceptable as a progression, though, is the fact that the dominant chord we've heard is an inversion, making it weaker than it normally would be, which then lends itself towards progressing to the four rather than back to tonic. To end this little phrase, we have a tonic chord in second inversion, which is its weakest form, leading to a non-inverted dominance and quickly resolving back on the second inversion tonic. Now this is not a strong cadence, but that's actually beneficial as we are basically still in the middle of the first statement of the piece. So remember how we said each movement of this work is in G major? Well... That doesn't mean it can't modulate. The next part of this statement starts back with our normal tonic chord, and then through crafty use of raising the predominant, in this case from C to C sharp, we transition to a different key. We're now going to be working the key of D major, which is related to G major, as the fifth. To establish this new key, Abel spends the whole next measure elaborating our new tonic with a strong one chord, followed by a downward major scale. This scale takes us to the minor six with predominant function, leading to the dominant and ending on the tonic of D major. Then with no fancy pivot chord or preparation at all, Abel just slaps a repeat sign on the end of the phrase, taking us right back to the beginning and the home key of G major. This works, though, since G and D major are closely related keys. And all that theory came out in just eight bars of this piece. As you can tell, Abel was willing and able to use ah. standard harmonies to write pleasing music in the classical gallant style. Are you tired of slogging through theory yet? Well, we'll go on a little easier on the second movement. We will point out, however, that the second movement starts out on a D pickup note, but we quickly know that the real tonic of this phrase is still in fact G major, as the downbeat is a strong and non-inverted G major tonic. 
While the harmony in the first movement was nicely laid out with chords and voice leading, the second movement's harmony is shown through extensive arpeggios and scales. You can hear this scalar section that we have moved into the D major realm, not based on any definitive downbeat chord, but simply because we hear the whole D major scale. Another feature of this movement is the use of the Alberti bassline. Now remember, this is where an arpeggio is kind of played out of order, with the highest note of the arpeggio being highlighted as it is played in between the sounding of every subsequent lower note, and this pattern is repeated at least a few times in a row. So I hope you enjoyed that little theory breather, because now we're going to jump into the third movement and analyze the ending phrase of the entire work. As this movement is a minuet and trio, this ending phrase is actually the same as the beginning phrase of the movement, since it's an ABA form work. Like the rest of the work, this phrase starts on G major. This has a very strong tonic chord that features two octaves of Gs and the fifth, D. In this case, the third of the chord, which is B, is omitted. However, Abel stays on this chord for longer than he has in other parts of the work. Even though the third is initially omitted, he elaborates on the chord by taking passing tones up through that third. The next measure is a G major scale. It starts on the third, and we rest on the tonic G in the middle of the measure. As the scale then continues down beyond the G, we reach the good old dominant D. To emphasize that we're now going to be playing around in D major, Abel jumps the dominant down an octave for emphasis. The next little collection of notes is interesting. Harmonically, it is working around A, the 5 of 5 in the dominant key. However, it's just a sequence of the same passage we've just heard in the key of G, but with everything taken up a whole step, as you can hear, when they're played one after the other. The scale this time, however, instead of just going down, does a little turn around in preparation to jump to C, which is the predominant 4 of G. And based on our classical harmony rules, we know that once we've reached a solid 4 chord, we're in for the home stretch. Or maybe not, because instead of moving on to the dominant 5, Abel actually gives us a very solid tonic chord followed by a tonic arpeggio. As you can hear, this could be the end of the piece. What causes us to feel like the piece is incomplete, however, is the fact that this has only been a two-bar phrase. In the gallant style, four-bar phrases are very key. Throughout the entire piece, we have been working with the standard phrase length, and so that's what we're expecting in this final cadence. So since we are expecting it to go on, even though this is technically a strong cadence, we don't hear it as tonic at all. So to sweeten the ending, Abel finally brings out all the stops to provide a good dominant to tonic progression. He starts with a fancy 5 of 5, basically giving us double dominant. This lets us first resolve to the dominant, then finally back to G. So here's that complete 4-bar ending with all the juicy chords we desire. What a sweet little work to be played on the dulcet tones of the viol. 
We hope you've enjoyed this theoretical romp. We know it can be a bit academic at times. But when you have a really well-written progression, theory is fun. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. If you enjoy what we've done, please share us with a friend and talk about us on social media, all that good stuff. Leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Please. (laughs) (laughs) For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Asa. And I'm Allison. Thank you so much for listening. The Sonata in G Major was performed by Philip W. Cerna. You can find The Coffeehouse on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating, write us a review, and share our episodes with a friend. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Email us at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.